Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. And welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. That was a great intro read. No stumbles at all. Thank you very much. It's almost like I don't do it correctly every week and you never hear it. (laughs) How are you enjoying the uh, the fresh snowfall that we have? I don't have my snow tires on yet, so yeah. not not so much. Isn't it wonderful? I drove very slowly all the way home last night because I'm notorious for slipping out into the ditch <laughs> or not being able to get out of my neighborhood. So, uh, do you have four wheel drive? No, I don't. Do you have snow tires? I don't. You should get snow tires. Snow tires are just like chains around your tires, right? No, or do just, you get actual... there's like a different tire. I never had them until last winter. A buddy of mine who knows a lot more about cars was like, "Get the damn snow tires." So I went and got them. And he gave me the sound advice of putting them on their own set of rims. So I just switched the whole tire on and off. Hmm. They were a game changer last winter, except I only got stuck once last winter. And that was when I tried to take on a snow drift that was way beyond the capabilities of my Ford Escape. Sure. But it really does make a huge difference. When I was driving last night and I don't, like I said, I don't have them on yet. I suddenly realized, I'm like, oh my God, I am way nervous. I shouldn't have tried to go up County Q um, (laughs) in the snow. Well, that's not a bad idea. My neighborhood is all big hills and 90 degree turns. So it's very treacherous to try to get out of. Plus, we don't get plowed until about noon each day. So it can get pretty tough. Yeah, even those small hills, when you get a snowfall like exactly like yesterday's, it's it becomes a a big adventure to try and get up those. Right. Well, and it's like you're trying to gather enough speed to get up the hills, but not too much speed so that you spin out on the turns. Yeah. And it's a a game that you have to play. We used to uh, sit at Husby's on a snowstorm day, and you would just play this game where you'd kind of bet on which vehicle was going to get stuck halfway up the hill and have to back its way down the Sister Bay Hill. At the time, they had the Mission Grill there, which now lure. So if you were kind of around there, you could kind of slip into that parking lot and turn around. But some people would have to literally back up all the way down that hill, which is a pretty scary, treacherous proposition. Right. And it's not to mention that it's not even like the middle of November yet. No. And we've got our first big snows and it's it's obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all for snow like the day after Thanksgiving. I thought I had t- time to like mulch up the leaves in my lawn, yep. transplant a couple trees. No. Yep, that was me too. I was like, oh, there's still some time to get stuff. I was like, I'm going to get a new snowplow so that I can actually, and it just, nope, I'm about a month behind on all my chores. So why don't we jump into the news this week? We've got a couple stories, a couple conversations to have with some people. First up, the libraries are now accepting non-perishable donations in lieu of overdue library book fines. Yeah, from uh, November 18th through the 23rd, Door County Libraries are going to accept like canned goods and things that you don't have to pay your library fine. So if you've been sitting on a book forever and just didn't want to pay that fine, freeloading off the system, you can return it, just bring a canned good in, and that will be sent to one of the food pantries to help people out in Door County. So it's going to stay right here. That's awesome. It's such a cool way to incentivize that thing because there's so many organizations up here and places that you can go to bring canned food and stuff to donate 
but this is, you know, it there's there's an incentive here too. So it's like, hey, this pays off. I wonder what the exchange rate is. Like it's fifty cents per can of tomato soup or something like yeah. that. Or <laughs> or how much I don't even know what an overdue library book fine is. Is it a dollar? Because you're a good person and you don't sit on those books. So other people who want that book are, are are just left waiting for those literary masterpieces. Yeah, let's go with that. And not the fact that I don't support my local libraries <laughs> and don't have a library card. Um which I totally should. But yeah, it's a it's a cool way to incentivize that and get people to to bring out some stuff for people who need it. Yeah, just remind people, all right, I forgot I even had this book. I should grab it. I'll do it now. And you kind of feel better about it rather than punished. But interesting thing that I read a while back from somebody who worked in food pantries is we we tend to do a lot of these food drives and you bring in canned goods or non-perishable items. So these places then, like a food pantry, then has to spend a lot of time moving that kind of food around, either in the warehouse or in a big city, like a massive warehouse and then distributing it to other centers around the city. And sometimes it's just, you know, there's a reason people give away non-perishable food. It's really easy to give away cream corn or a box of cereal and things like that. I actually talked to somebody who worked at a food pantry once where they'd say, we'd much rather you just give us a dollar. Really? Because then we can buy the actual food that's needed at an actual spot, and we don't spend any of our overhead moving pallets of food around. That's fair. And, And organizing it and and having to distribute it to the places that need it. They can go, all right, we're going to order this and have it sent to this specific place, and this is exactly what's needed, and it might be a healthier version. But kind of an interesting take on that. I think maybe like Freakonomics or something like that did an episode on that once too. But Could you tape a couple dollars to each can that you donate? That'd be even better, right? That? Yeah, you could yeah. offset the cost a little bit that way. I feel like this... I don't mean to discourage people giving... It was just like an interesting tidbit that I read once, and I'm like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's other ways that uh, you can offset certain things with donations. Like, if you've got, like, school lunch money fines, like you're renting out of school lunch money, and now you're negative, you could bring in some donations to offset that cost. And maybe it's not a popular opinion, but I am staunchly on the side of, I think you should just feed children, like, at lunch. Yeah, there are some weird, like, punishment things going on now where kids are, what did I read recently, like, something where kids were being suspended for not having paid their lunch fine or something, or right. there were, were penalties to their parents, and it's like, if they're not paying for their, their overdue school lunches, isn't that symptomatic of a bigger problem for yeah, their family? Right. I, I was a recipient of, like, free school lunch as a, as a kid. We didn't have money, so I was, like, one of those freeloaders. But, I mean, that played a big part in me getting a good meal every day for many years. And I wouldn't even call you a freeloader. I just think that you should feed children when they're hungry at lunch. Yeah, that's a good point. I should change that language there. Like, yeah, I mean, good idea. You were a recipient of food when when you should have been fed. And it's one of those things where it's like, why would you punish a student who comes in and is like, I can't afford lunch? And like, well, then you don't get lunch. It's like, what is that? This isn't like the free economy. It's school. They have to be there. Feed them when they're hungry. And and I absolutely had that occurrence at different times growing up of like, well, I don't have any money. And and you're asking a kid to ask for help, which you're just not. I mean, I was never going to do that because then you're exposing what you don't have, which is even more embarrassing. So, yeah, the lesson today, feed kids. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Kind of in the same vein, the Sturgeon Bay United Methodist Church holds a Thanksgiving dinner every year for people who are either alone on Thanksgiving or without family or can't connect with their family. And I think that this is a really cool thing. You see it in in different communities, and it's great to have one here. And, And this one apparently feeds quite a few people. Yeah, it's at Sturgeon Bay United Methodist Church. It's an all community Thanksgiving dinner. You don't have to be a member of that church to go. And yeah, it was uh, Reverend David Hatch and his wife were going to be alone for Thanksgiving 40 years ago. 
And they decided to start this this community dinner. And it just grown and grown and volunteers put this together. And it's just kind of a, a great way if you if you have a loved one who's going to be left behind in Door County for that weekend, might want to make them aware of this. Uh, those of you who are just by yourselves, be aware of this. Or if you just want to go and, and be part of the community right. and be part of something bigger than your own family. And they're also, they always need volunteers, helpers. So Certain Bay United Methodist Church reservations need to be in by the 25th of November okay. to be part of that dinner. Again, I, I feel like I always go back to like my husband's days. Uh, so sorry, I've said, that's annoying. But we would always be open on Thanksgiving. And that's the first time it kind of opened my eyes because I grew up in a big family where we'd all get together on Thanksgiving. Right. And then when we had the restaurant, I wasn't able to travel to be around some of my family that had spread around the country. So it was kind of lonely and we'd just be open. And it was amazing, eye-opening to me to see how many people came in who were in the same boat. They had nowhere else to go. So to, and one, one part of my instinct was like, well, a bar shouldn't be open on Thanksgiving because people should be with their families. But then you realize there's a lot of people who just don't have, you take that for granted. A lot of people right. who don't have the family to be with. So having a restaurant or a bar open was great for them because they could come in and, and have some food and be around people. So, right. Have you ever spent a Thanksgiving by yourself or away from your family? This will be the first year that we do. Um, for the last like seven years, I've been going to Victoria's family Thanksgiving and she has a big family reunion. There's like 30 people there and it's all down in Elgin and we kind of get together with everybody. But this year she's not allowed to travel because she is very, very pregnant. So uh, <laughs> like she is, she's due December 20th. I think she's coming out on Thanksgiving. So it'll, it'll be fun. But this is our first Thanksgiving alone. And we're actually going to do a Friendsgiving on okay. Friday. So we're going to have our friends who are up here in the county over and we're going to have kind of like a, a potluck Thanksgiving dinner with everybody. So, Excellent. Yeah, it'll be fun. So one more thing before we get into our break. The Sturgeon Bay soccer team went to state. We we talked about that last week, I believe. Yeah. And what happened? Uh, they brought home their second state championship, I think, in the last four, maybe five years. Todd Moss and his crew had uh, kind of, you know, midseason didn't seem like this was their year. And they just rallied, went on a run down the stretch. And our reporter, uh, Matt Pottist, who's located down in Chicago, made the trek up to Milwaukee for that state title game. So I had a little conversation with him this morning about that game and the ebbs and flows and um, kind of an exciting finish there for Sturgeon Bay. Cool. Okay, with me now is Matt Pottist, our sports writer for the Peninsula Pulse. Matt, welcome to the podcast. You were down at the state title game to see Sturgeon Bay go for their second state title. Kind of set the scene for us. Tell us what it was like down there. I didn't know really what to expect because I you know Division Four soccer, you know, they're smaller schools and stuff like that. But when I showed up there, both teams had great crowds. Um, it was pretty electric. It was a perfect, uh, perfect venue. The U Line Stadium down there is a perfect venue because it's not too big, but it's not too small. So you know, you get down there, you walk into the place, and you, you could tell there was some excitement. And I, I think part of the reason there was excitement for this is these two teams, the Prairie School and Sturgeon Bay. And uh, a couple other schools are the preeminent uh, programs in Division Four. So having these two programs play against each other lends to that a little bit too, right? They played each other in the state championship in 2017. Uh, Prairie School won 1-0. They played in the regular season this year. They tied 3-3 in a very competitive match. So I think everybody that was there was expecting this to be a really high caliber match when when uh, when uh, you know the teams were warming up. So yeah, it was exciting. Let's backtrack a little bit. How did Sturgeon Bay get here? I know kind of in midseason, or maybe it was closer to the end of the season, they actually lost their first conference game 
in 29 matches to Gibraltar, kind of unexpected. You know, as a as somebody who hasn't followed it as closely, to me, I thought, oh, maybe Sturgeon Bay is, is slipping a little bit. And then they turn around and they have this great finish to the season. What happened there? You know, sometimes in soccer, you can go up against a team that is probably not as good as you, and that team can score early. And the longer that game drifts without you getting an equalizer, um, the harder it is to win that match. And I think that's what happened against Gibraltar. I think, you know, they have a, a good team there, but, you know, Sturgeon Bay is probably better. Uh, definitely better. But I think in that situation, they scored early. They didn't necessarily park the bus, but I think they played a little bit defensively, probably. And what happens is when good teams, you know, go longer and longer without scoring, they might have, you know, gotten a little bit frantic and they might have become a little bit more impatient. And Gibraltar held on to win that game. As it comes to the playoffs, the first couple of rounds, they had some easy wins, but they also went up against an undefeated Boostburg team in the championship of the sectional. And they went into overtime and scored late in the overtime match. And I do remember, I listened to it on the radio, and I do remember Eastberg, uh hit a post, uh, maybe hit a, a crossbar and uh, late in the match. And uh, Todd Moss said they were sort of fortunate to get out of that. But, you know, of course, you know, they scored more goals. They won the match, so um, they earned it. But I think that Eastberg match was in the playoffs the toughest one they had. And once they got beyond that, I think they were pretty destined to get back to Prairie School once they got to the Final Four. And then uh, take us through the game. Um, obviously, you can't get much closer than a double overtime thriller. How'd this yeah. all play out? Well, it, it's interesting. The first uh, 15 minutes of the match, and I, and I alluded this in my story, Sturgeon Bay owned the run of play. And they really, they had, they had uh, the, the defense for um, the Prairie School uh, reeling a little bit. They had a ball uh, hit the crossbar, and then they had another ball that hit um, a, a post. They could have easily been up 2-0, that would have allowed them to switch the game a little, play a little bit more defensively, take fewer chances, and you know I, I wouldn't say park the bus, but you know uh, take fewer chances and be more defensive and, and protect that lead. Two to zero lead is a, a big lead in a match like this, right? So then what happens? Typically Murphy's law uh, prevails, and after this bad scramble and they almost score twice, the Prairie School then five or ten minutes later they recoup and then they score a goal. All right, so they go up one to zero. Uh, probably about 28 minutes into the match. So typical what happens, you, you come close to scoring a bunch of times and all of a sudden the opposition comes back and gets one on you. Then, you know, Sturgeon Bay rebounded a bit. And then about the 41st minute um, on a corner kick by C.J. Fairchild, he placed a beautiful service across the, the end line. And it's a tough ball for the goalkeeper to manage because it's close to the crossbar, but it's still inside the field of play. And the goalkeeper for the, the prayer school is not as tall as your average goalkeeper. He leaps up, hits a hand on the ball, but doesn't get enough of it. It deflects off his hands. And Eli Dietzel standing there, ball drops on his feet. He taps it in. And we've got a 1-1 game heading into halftime. A huge goal uh, for Sturgeon Bay because I really think they needed to get the equalizer before the half. But the turn, maybe the prayer school gets a little bit more defensive in the second half and sure. protects that lead and gets off of there. But yeah, the first half was back and forth, and it, it was quality soccer. Now they go into overtime, and a second overtime. Um, how'd this all play out? The uh, Prairie School had to play a man down because they had a, a guy that was sent off with a red card in the 86th minute. He uh, challenged the 50-50 ball with Carson Dvorak, and arrived a little bit late, and it was a big collision, and the guy deserved to get his second yellow card, but Dvorak was on the field for about five minutes before he got taken off the field. They finished out the match, they go into overtime. First overtime, Prairie packs it in a little bit because they're a man down, of course, 
and uh, they, Sergey Bay couldn't get much of an attack there. Second overtime, Perry School loosens it up a little bit, and with about two and a half minutes to go in the match, uh, T.J. Fairchild delivers a beautiful ball to the six-yard box. Dvorak uh, comes out from underneath, you know, in the scrum with all the you know people tangled up inside the box, uh, leaps up, leans forward, heads the ball in, and that's the game winner. So you've got a guy that I wasn't sure he was going to come back in. That's how hard he got hit hmm. in the 86th minute. But later in the match, here's a guy who comes off the field holding his head, and you know, 21 minutes later, he's using his head to win the match. Uh, Sergio Bay clears the ball every time he comes down. They finish out the last two and a half minutes in Bedlam. Um, it was a quality match. In my mind, I'm kind of a soccer snob. I watch <laughs> high school soccer. My son plays high school soccer in Chicago, and we play schools with two, 3,000 kids, right? So I showing up and watching these schools with 400 kids. This was quality soccer. These are two great teams that had great depth in soccer. It was well-played soccer, and I, I my hat's off to both teams. Sturgeon Pace got a well-coached team. A bunch of great kids spoke to a handful of them after the match, but... I, I, this was the most enjoyable thing that I've watched uh, since I, you know, joined the uh, Peninsula Post a little bit more than a year ago. But this was fantastic, and Sturgeon Bay earned every ounce of this victory. They played hard. They're a great team. They're a well-coached, great program, and they should be very proud of the performance their team made. What is it that, if if you can take anything away from it, from talking to these players over the course of the season and talking to Coach Todd Moss and then watching this this state final, what makes them a state champion? What makes them a great team? I think there's two things that are involved there. I think they're well coached, and I don't think it stops the time off. I think he's got some assistant coaches that are very involved in the program. I think that he expects a lot out of his players, and I think he works them hard and they train hard. And two, you know, they're a very good program in a small area. And I don't take anything away from the Packerland Conference uh, teams, but they are the preeminent team in that conference. And they, they, they get some wins that are high, high, you know, six, five, six, seven to zero in that conference. But they don't shy away from anybody else. I'll give you an example. They played the Prairie School in the in the regular season, right? Mm-hmm. The team they beat in the championship. They played Nina, lost to them two two nil. Nina uh, either won or lost in the state championship game in, in Division One. They play other larger schools, so they're going out there and playing schools uh, with kids in the thousands, right? So they are out there. They're playing the schedule that that prepares them for the rigors of the of, uh, of the postseason. And they're not scared of anyone. I really do believe that the Prairie School and Surgery Bay could compete with any team in the state. And I think because both of those schools are so well coached and they take all comers, I think that prepares them well for the postseason. And when they get into situations where it's not an 8-0 to win, they're ready to go because they've been there, right? They've done yeah. it a few times during the regular season. They were not surprised by this outcome. You've been behind before. You've dealt with that kind of speed before. Sure. Um, and that go, that goes into scheduling in high school. You you can um, you can schedule a lot of patsies out there and just and and aim for an undefeated season if you were in Sturgeon Bay's boat. But um, they're just they're really scheduling to prepare themselves for the postseason. It's really smart. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and it's smart because they didn't freak out when they went down by a goal, and they didn't freak out when it became hard and it became a very physical match, and they were matching you know tackle for tackle. They just stood up. You know, they, they said, we've been here, we'll do it, we're great. So, yeah, that's hats off to, to uh, Todd Moss and the administration for that. Well, congrats to Sturgeon Bay on bringing home their second state championship in soccer, what, probably the best program of, of in any sport going right now in the Door County area. And, Matt, thank you for getting up there and covering that game. Your mileage reimbursement is coming. 
And uh, thanks for uh, all you do to cover high school sports up here. I, I appreciate it. And I hope I can get back there next year and watch the same kind of match. I would certainly be uh, looking forward to that. Thanks, Miles. All right. Thank you. Okay. Why don't we take a break, Miles? And then when we come back, Matt Rothschild gave a presentation at the Crest last night that you were able to go to, kind of about gerrymandering and, yeah. and stuff like that. So we'll get into that right after the break. Miles, writing for The Pulse is your career, but broomball is your passion. <laughs> that, that might be correct. There's an event coming up this weekend, and we wanted to tell everybody about it. Give me a little bit of background about what's going on at the Sister Bay Ice Rink. This Saturday, November 16th, we are doing a kind of bonfire kickoff for the rink. Most likely, there will not be ice laid down yet, despite how cold it has been already. But we're just trying to get some people out there, have some fun, kind of an excuse to have a big bonfire down at the fire pit there and make people aware of the programming and the leagues and skating nights that we're going to have there this winter. And we're committed to making sure it's open as much as possible and just have a fun time down there at the Sister Bay Ice Rink, the Teresa K. Highlander Community Ice Rink. If Rimball and using the ice rink is important to you, make sure that you come down on Saturday and enjoy the festivities. Yeah, it's going to be 4 to 8 p.m. We're going to have live music from Solomon Lindenberg. We'll have brats and beer and hot chocolate for sale. We'll have some kids games, some uh, Brimball and hockey shooting games so people can win some prizes, test your skills a little bit. And uh, just have some fun down there and check out the facility if you've never been up there. We'll have some broomball equipment for you to check out if you have never played and might be interested. You can come see what those spongy shoes are all about. We'll just help people find out what they need to know and maybe align some people with some teams if you're interested in playing but just don't have a team and want to sign up. Or if you have a team ready to go and you want to get in the league, we're still looking for them. Or if you're interested in just donating or sponsoring, taking an ad out on the boards, have some fun and learn a little bit more about the rink. And uh, we're committed to, to keeping that thing open. Hopefully we get it open by the, the holidays this year and keep it open through February. Great. I'm excited for the return of Broomball Miles. His energy was sorely missed last year. <laughs> yeah, I, I do love Broomball. Okay, we are back. So tell me about the event at the Crest last night. Yeah, so I drove through the snow to the Crest Pavilion on Wednesday evening to hear a presentation from Matt Rothschild, uh, as you said the head of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. And it was about gerrymandering, which you're familiar with gerrymandering? Yes, I, I have a decent knowledge of what it means. Okay. I consider it probably one of the bigger threats, not not even a threat, it's just one of, it's because it exists now, <laughs> it's already right. here. But it impacts our political process. Uh, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, it's for better or for worse. I would say like which whatever side you're on, it's probably for worse because depending on who ends up in power, they control who draws these maps. And every few years, it gets skewed to one party or the other. And there are better ways to do it. Or at least that's the argument that Matt Rothschild makes. Right. And so the, the way that it's done right now, why, why is that a problem? Well, I asked Matt that. Tell me again, what is gerrymandering and why is it a problem? So gerrymandering is the rigging of the political maps by whichever political party is in power. It deprives people of their voice. It deprives people of really a full vote because you cram as many of the people in the party uh, that is opposed to you into as few districts as possible, giving the political party in power much more representative, uh, much more representation in the other areas. Okay, so that's that's the current problem. What options do we have in terms of a better way to do it? I talked to Matt about that as well. And fortunately, we don't have to 
come up with our own solution. Other places have already done this. So they're drawn now by the political parties. What's what's the solution? Who should be drawing these maps? And how do we trust them to draw them? Well, the nice thing is we don't need to reinvent the wheel on this. Iowa invented the wheel 40 years ago. Iowa has career civil servants drawing the maps with specific criteria that forbid them from using any political demographic data about how people in this district voted or people in that district voted to distort the maps in favor of one party or another. And they also are required to keep cities intact, counties intact, natural boundaries with rivers, etc. So there's no more monkey business with the maps in Iowa. It's worked well in Iowa for 40 years. It can work well in Wisconsin for 40 years. So how does gerrymandering affect the process overall? Like when you have a system like this, what does that mean in, in terms of the outcome of voting? Well, that's really where it gets interesting because, you know, it just looks like, okay, so you're drawing maps. Okay, great. So that impacts who gets elected. But it has a trickle-down effect in how our politics play out every single day and how people on the Democratic Party interact with people on the Republican Party, whether or not we see compromise, whether we see people responding to constituents. And Matt Rothschild talked about that as well. Elected officials can ignore large segments of the public. Uh, Here we have in Wisconsin, uh, 72% of Wisconsinites want to ban gerrymandering, including 66% of, 63% of Republicans and 76% of independents. They're in safe districts, though, the elected officials, so they can ignore that. They're ignoring common sense gun control, which 81% of the Wisconsinites want. They're ignoring the demand for medical marijuana that 83% of Wisconsinites want, because they're in safe districts and they feel like they're not going to face the consequences. I mean, at some point they're going to have to face the consequences and no matter how gerrymandered their district is, if enough people turn out with enough uh, outrage about gerrymandering and the lack of responsiveness by elected officials to what the citizens really want, they're going to pay a political price. And that goes not just for Republicans, right? I mean, Democrats don't, in, in very safe districts, don't have to, to reach across the aisle as well. They don't need to reach across the aisle Actually, the general election is irrelevant in a lot of these districts because uh, they are so uh, lopsided that the only election that counts is the primary election, like in Dane County, which is overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, Whoever wins the primary uh, in Dane County for any local offices is likely to win the election. And same in uh, Republican counties like Waukesha or Ozaki. Um, And we used to have a lot more competitive districts in this state. We have fewer and fewer competitive districts. When we don't have competitive districts. That leads to hyper-partisanship, a lack of cooperation, a lack of common courtesy, and uh, the uh, good of the people is not served in the capital because it's pulled and tugged by the hyper-partisan leaders on both sides that have a lot of money at their disposal to reprimand any official who wants to vote their conscience and primary them with someone who would toe the line better and uh, force them out of office. So in Door County, how do local representatives uh, stand on the issue? Like, what are what are the policies that we know of right now? Well, the Door County Board of Supervisors in 2014 voted in favor of using a fair maps system of, of having a nonpartisan group draw our political maps. 48 out of 72 Wisconsin counties have done the same thing. Some counties have gone to a, a broad public referendum. Uh, the fair maps committee in Door County is pushing to get a referendum on the Door County ballot. As for our local representatives, Joel Kitchens actually signed on to a bill supporting drawing the maps fairly. Matt Rothschild said there's a lot of pressure on Kitchens to drop off of that um, from leadership on the House House Republicans. 
But as of right now, he's still signed on in support of it. He's been kind of lukewarm about it where he said, I, I'll sign on. I don't think it changes much. I don't think it's that big of a deal. But he's at least signed on. And so are four other Assembly Republicans. Uh, this is the first time they've had that many sign on to any of these bills. In the Senate, there are no Republicans signed on to Senator Dave Hansen's bill addressing the same topic. Andre Jacques has, according to Rothschild, shown no interest, has not reached out, has not attended any sessions with their campaign to try and, and get these these new legislative maps. But, you know, they're still working. They're trying to get any of the Republican senators in the state to jump on board. I'm curious to hear about how listeners of this podcast uh, react to us talking about like national and global politics. But it's always one of my favorite things to do because Door County is this really kind of interesting microcosm, like economically and politically, to see how politics on the grander stage are trickling down into our community and to actually see the effects of the national stage on what we have going on here. It's one of my favorite things to talk about because like you can physically see the results of it. Yeah. I mean, our Senate district. You can draw that any way. Like you, you might say like, okay, Door County Senate District should be an entirely shoreline district. You could draw it right down the state and avoid Brown County altogether and just go down to, say, Manitowoc, and that's your Senate district. Our Senate district goes and gobbles up a little part of Green Bay. You know, so in in our case, we are represented represented in the state Senate by Andre Jacques, who lives in De Beer. That, for better or worse, I mean, there's you're going to have some pros and cons to however you draw those maps. But that's why that kind of is important, because if you draw it differently, you know, we're represented by someone totally different than Andre Dick. It might right. be somebody who's really de dedicated to like farming in the Kiwani area. It's still not like maybe not the same concerns that somebody in Ellison Bay has, but it, it, it's a different representation. So that's why those maps start to matter is because you're really carving out who can represent you and what they have to care about. Right. On a national level, like I, I saw Bill Bradley, the former senator and presidential candidate speak uh, a few years ago in Chicago, and he talked about two things as being the, the central threats to democracy in this country. And one of them was the way we draw legislative maps. He was talking on the national scale. Congress, where roughly in a given year, probably 50 to 75 districts are actually competitive. The other ones are just really safe Democratic or really safe Republican districts, right. which means they don't have to reach across party lines, just like Rothschild talked about. Um, that's why we don't see much compromise on the national level or the state level or really responding to constituents on either side. And then the other thing he talked about was campaign finance, which is really a part of this, too, because it kind of locks up where the money goes. And this kind of unfettered access to money that campaigns now have where corporations can give a million dollars and at any time it used to be capped um, where individuals can give huge sums of money and where you can donate to super PACs who don't even have to be attached to a campaign, but can throw slander on our TV screens all day long. And we're, you know, next football season is going to be awful for me because you're going to have all those nonstop, terrible campaign ads. It's the only time I ever see them because I don't watch a lot of TV otherwise. Right. But that all trickles down. And what Bradley said, like, if you don't address campaign finance and if you don't address gerrymandering, everything else is sort of a moot point because as long as you don't have that, like, our, our government is not going to be as responsive to constituents as it, sh as it should be a, and as the founders drew it up. Right. Yeah, because the, the most important thing is having a representative government. And if, if those are the two things that are taking power out of the people's hands and moving them into corporations or, or other things, then that's like a fundamental flaw in the whole process. This is an idea that probably 
next to nobody would agree with, but I actually think we need a lot more representatives. I mean, you, if you look at our, the last time we increased the number of representatives uh, to our, its current level is was back in like 1911 when the population was about 105 million uh, in the United States. Today, our population is 330 million, give or take. So we're represented by one third fewer <laughs> fewer people today than people were in 1911. So you're a lot farther away. Like if you go back to that time, it was a pretty good chance you might actually meet your local congressman right. and senator. Now it's just they're they're representing so many different people, so many more interests. We were a largely agrarian society at that point with some urban centers. We have totally shifted to a majority urban population today, much less farming and agrarian. And we're asking to represent that with far fewer people. So I would say Congress should be roughly three times the size as it is now. If people who really want to go back to, you know, the kind of making America what it once was, which would also have to be, you know, racist and anti-woman, which in many ways it still is. I'm not trying to say that it's not anymore, but you'd also have to say like, all right, we need a lot more representation. Right. Well, I think that's just about going to do it for us this week, Miles. Thank you so much for chatting with me and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah. Thanks for indulging me, Andrew. For more Door County news, interviews, and exclusive content, check us out at DoorCountyPulse.com or pick up this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse available every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast to get new episodes delivered straight to your device twice a week. Thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast.